Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. So now it does my heart so very well to be able to bring back to Intentional Conversations podcast. And I say back because Ricardo has joined us before, but he's now back because he has a new book and we want to talk about that among many other things. But Ricardo... Gonzalez is actually going to be sharing a lot about his new book and other topics as well. So as I normally do, let me give you his official bio, and then he will um, be able to come and join us in conversation. Ricardo is the founder and CEO of Bilingual America. He is an author, consultant, and public speaker. His books include The Six Stages of Cultural Mastery, The Six Stages of Cultural Cells, The Cultural Transformation Manifesto, and The 12 Hidden Truths to Learning Spanish. We will be discussing cross-cultural communications and Ricardo's new book, To Belong or Not to Belong. So, Y'all know what to do, podcast community. You've been with us for quite some time. As I bring Ricardo on and I help spotlight him as well as my colleague, Courtney Perry, I want you all to provide into the chat just some ways of letting them know that we appreciate them being here with us today. We look forward to the conversation and, um, and we always appreciate the show of support by this community. So first and foremost, Courtney, thank you kindly for um, actually being with me today as my uh, partner in crime as we um, host our wonderful friend Ricardo. And Ricardo, welcome to you as well. We're so grateful that you're here. Um, we want to give you the first opportunity to greet this audience in your own way, Ricardo. And one of the things that we often like to ask of our guest co-host is that while we've read your bio, so we know your accolades, your credentials, the lens in which you bring broadly to this conversation, share with us maybe some additional things that we would not know about you just by reading your bio and then help us just to get better connected with who you are as a person. Welcome, Ricardo. Thank you, Nika. Good to see you again. Hope you're doing well. And thank you for endorsing the new book. So I appreciate that very much. All of us are driven by purpose and mission. And so for me, coming out of a bicultural home, my dad uh, was from Puerto Rico and my mother was an orphan from the state of Kentucky. And I mean this with a lot of endearment. Uh, I call myself a Puerto Rican hillbilly. And so it's, and, and in Puerto Rico, to just to understand that, because I know in the U.S. that can be seen as a derogatory term, but in Puerto Rico, the word for hillbilly is jibaro. And it is actually the most revered figure in our traditions and in our culture. And so when we say that, it means something entirely different than perhaps what you're used to hearing or seeing. And so much of culture is about perspective, right? And so what in one culture we may see as a positive in another culture, it may be seen as a, as a negative. And so we have to work through those things. But, you know, I grew up in a home, Nick, as you know, that was very dysfunctional culturally. And there was a lot of conflict between the Puerto Rican side of my family and the, the, the Kentucky side of my family. And I think that that's what really has driven me through the years to really research and study and, and just process a lot of these things. You know, they, uh, I, I got a master's in counseling, and I think that most people who go into counseling or psychology do so first and foremost to heal themselves. And in my case, the, the real base reason that I got into really studying culture, 
cultural dynamics, cultural communications was to heal myself. Mm -hmm. And then in that process, I learned that it could also help heal a lot of other people. And so I've been blessed over the years to have just a wonderful uh, 30 years now uh, since I founded Bilingual America. And, you know, we've, we've had a wonderful client base over the years and, and we do both language and cultural communication. So because they go together, obviously language is part of culture. And so it's an honor to be here with you. I admire your work. I admire you. And so however you want to take this conversation, we'll take it. And um, I'm, I'm always uh, honored to be in your presence. Well, thank you so much, Ricardo. We are honored to have you here back with us, and we're super excited. And so again, congratulations on the newly released book. Um, and you were gracious enough to allow me to be a part of that process. And I can't thank you enough. I was so honored that you asked for me to um, read it in advance and to provide some commentary on how um, effective of, of, a, of a tool that it is. And so thank you kindly. So what I want to do, and actually, by the way, the reason that, um, well, one of the reasons that I have my colleagues sharing this stage with me today is because I am double booked and I do have to leave a little bit before the top of the hour. So Courtney's going to be able to close us fully out, but she's going to be deeply engaged in today's conversation with Ricardo. And so Courtney, I would love for you to take an opportunity just to greet this audience. And then why don't you present the first question to our friend Ricardo? Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Nika. I'm super excited to <clears throat> co-host along with you today. Um, and to talk with you, Ricardo, about your book. We've gotten a chance to connect, and I also have had an opportunity to read um, the book, which is phenomenal, but I'm excited to kind of just socialize with you around that and belonging. And I think a really good place to start is just right there. Um, you know, for you, I know your book, To Belong or Not to Belong, um, but for you, what does it mean to belong? Like, what is belonging? How does that look? What does that feel like? And, and how, how should it show up? Yeah, I think at its deepest level, belonging is about a sense of ownership. Do I deeply feel that I'm part of it and it's part of me? And am I willing to fight for that? Am I willing to die for that? At its very deepest level, belonging is not about a sense of affinity or a sense of feeling good about being someplace. It's, is it mine? Yeah. And there's a... The, the way the book is, and you read the book, so the book is very different in its approach because it's set up along the lines, the, the title came from Hamlet, right? To be or not to be. Mm -hmm. And so I took that and to belong or not to belong. And I think that they're actually very similar concepts. And the book is divided into three acts. So it's act one, which is personal belonging, act two, which is social belonging, and act three, which is corporate belonging. And they have different angles, right? But in personal belonging, one of the scenes, there are 10 scenes in each act. One of the scenes is called Own It. And I tell a story about how when I was five, my, my parents gifted me a set of drums. And I had an older brother who was bigger, stronger than I, and who also was the favorite son in the home. And... Um, as soon as I got those drums, he saw those drums and he wanted those drums, right? And anyways, he started playing the drums. And I, it was just one of these things that when you're young, that just they just embed on your soul, right? And he started playing those drums. And I said to him, get off, those belong to me. And of course, we fought about those drums and he ended up ruining my drums out of spite, right? 
<laughs> so, but to me, belonging is about a deep sense of ownership. Even later in the book under corporate belonging, we talk about how we, we talk about this proverbial, almost mythical seat at the table. It's like someone's giving us a seat at the table. But if belonging is real, we all own the table. And no one has to give us the seat because we're co-owners of the table if there's true belonging, right? So I think at its deepest level, belonging is about ownership, not just affinity or does it, am I in a place that makes me feel good or feel right? Um, I don't know if that helps, Courtney. But <laughs> so, but. Oh, that was perfect. Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. And I think... <clears throat> um, I love the belonging equals, is it mine? Um, I think that is beautiful. I, I really like that explanation of belonging. Um, and so I am kind of curious because this is something that I feel like as that I've probably experienced myself in life, but um, I think sometimes people can assume that, you know, conforming would be an easier approach to, to creating a sense of belonging, especially um, in environments where um, you feel very different. Um, and so, you know, how would you navigate these conversations with, you know, individuals who are feeling that that is a better approach or, you know, an easier approach? And then what role does psychological safety, you know, play in encouraging individuals to really show up as their complete selves? You know, the whole conversation of conformity as it relates to belonging, I think, is, a, is, is also you know, which battles do we choose to fight, right? And, and that goes back to priorities and what's important to a person. I think at, at its depth, you know, if you really kind of unveil the whole thing, it's all about two things. It, it's about identity, which is who do I believe I am? And it's about identification, which is who do other people believe I am? So we can actually be in a situation where we feel like we belong or should belong, but by identification, they don't see it that way, right? And so the deepest sense of belonging is when both identity and identification are aligned. And, and a lot of the struggle for people, you know, if you take bicultural people, right? <clears throat> people who perhaps they were born in another country, they, they immigrate into a new country, or people like myself, who they're born into two different cultures, essentially, right? And you, you typically tend to gravitate to one or the other. You know, like I really rejected my mother's Southern culture. I, for me, it was the Puerto Rican culture my whole life, right? In fact, I live in the Dominican Republic. My wife is Puerto Rican. Um, we speak Spanish in our home. The music I listen to is typically, that's my identity. but there are people who perhaps may see me because my English is natural, it's native, and I'm Caucasian. People might see me not as Latino. They may see that their identification of me, right? So I think that there, for people who are bicultural, there's a deeper struggle for identity and identification. But, you know, the United States, for example, is so multicultural that you can be very clear as to your own identity but you have to always be navigating other cultures. So these struggles of identification within those cultures can be difficult for people. So uh, I think we have to, 
you know, one of the things I really try to do in the book is to really peel it back, right? Get people to see this as a much deeper process and, and level of understanding, not just of other people, but of ourselves. Because if I, if I don't have a deep understanding and appreciation for who I am, then I can't really be asking other people to do that for me, right? And, and so I, I think it's both, Courtney. And that, that's really the whole premise of the book. Because what I started to see, as Nika does, you know, we work with large corporations. And you see these companies checking off the proverbial boxes, right? Quote, unquote, doing the right things. But you don't get this sense of it's this deep sense of heart, right? Especially from top level, low context, results-driven leadership, okay? And so the argument from DEI specialists going in is, this is good for business. So then decisions are made based on this is good for business and return on investment, which is fine. But that, that to me, that's a start point, right? And, but not necessarily coming from the heart. So what companies are doing is they're creating policy to somehow in their minds create belonging. But the whole premise of the book is that belonging is intensely personal. What makes you feel like you belong in a place or something belongs to you may make me feel like I don't wanna be there. It's incredibly personal. So in the book, what I really try to do is really to peel that back and allow people through different mechanisms and approaches to, to feel that. And I think belonging has to be felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's emotive. It's not entirely cognitive. So. Yeah, this is so good, Ricardo. And I, I appreciate the perspective of helping people to understand just how personal it is when we start talking about the, the concept of belonging. And you're absolutely right. What could feel like a sense of belonging from one person may not be produce the same result in another. So we do have to make sure we really are leaning into treating people as individuals and not just assuming that what worked for one person is automatically going to yield that same response. And, and what I love about how belonging has been amplified into this broader conversation of diversity, equity, and inclusion is that to me, it helps place even more emphasis on the humanity aspect yes. of, of the word and of the work in general. And that brings me actually to my next question. I, I am a fan of the work that Brene Brown does around the topic of empathy. I think that she does a really good job of helping us to understand that it is filling with people. That's how she talks about it. And she also talks about how empathy fuels connection, right? right? And so when I think about belonging, I see very clear intersection of empathy, helping to produce that strong sense of belonging for a number of people. So from your vantage point, Ricardo, what role does empathy play in making someone feel that they belong? And how can someone lean more into their empathy muscle so that it can show forth a level of support and inclusion for others? So first of all, I love Brene Brown's work. So just, I wanna get that out there because I think she's a fantastic author and speaker. I am not completely aligned with her definition of empathy. Empathy, the word empathy comes from a Greek term, empathos. Empathos means in passion. 
I think most people are equating empathy with compassion, but they're two different words. Mm -hmm. So I look at it like this. Sympathy is feeling bad for people. Mm -hmm. Compassion is feeling bad or feeling pain with people. people. Empathy is feeling passion for people. And empathy is actually stage three in the six stages of cultural mastery. And we define it in these terms. Because when I'm passionate about people, that will take me into stage four naturally, which is excitement. So as much as I love Brene Brown's work on this, and I love Simon Sinek's work on this, I think they're both incorrect in their definition of empathy. And I think it's a deeper term uh, beyond compassion. And I think we're confusing etymologically what these words actually mean. So if we go back to the original Greek, empathos, in passion. I want to be passionate about people. I don't want to just feel sorry for them or compassion with them. I want to feel passion for them because that leads me to excitement. That leads me to empowerment. That leads me to endearment. So, you know, I, I talk about this in the book, how we have now added the, the, the letter B to the end of DEI, right? And DEIB. But I really think that the B should be first. The, the cornerstone yeah. of the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement should be a true sense of belonging. Yeah. It, it's hard to accomplish these other things, which perhaps are more strategic and even tactical in nature without the human foundation of it, which is belonging. And, and mm-hmm. I don't, so Nika, I don't know, you know, I, I love your name of this podcast, Intentional Conversations, because we have to be able to have the deeper conversations. Sometimes people talk about, you know, courageous conversations or, or, or even daring discussions and stuff. And I'm like, no, these should be joyful conversations. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. yeah, I love that should, reframe. Yeah. Yeah, you know, these should be joyful conversations. We shouldn't be so like tense about it. We should be able to learn together and go deeper together and find new hopefully maybe more enlightening things that take us to better places, you know, together. So, um, but I think empathy is, 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 is critical. It's the tipping it, it, for me, it has to be passion towards people. And, and I, yeah. I love that understanding of the word empathy. That's for me. Awesome. Thank you. And I placed into the chat that belonging is the outcome and really that aligns with precisely what you were sharing, Ricardo, and that, you know, while it has made its way into the conversation, it really is the the core of it, right? It's the core and the reason that we do all of this work so that people can feel that sense of belonging. Well, if they don't, then what happens to people who don't feel like they belong, say, within a corporation? A couple of things happen. Either they stay, but they're unhappy and they're, they're emotionally or mentally checked out, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they stay because they have to, they need the paycheck or whatever they need. But other people actually sabotage relationships just to get out of it because they don't want to confront it, right? And then some, right. people are bold, some people are bold enough to actually leave. But all of those outcomes are very poor outcomes for an organization. So, of course, you know, it directly impacts retention, turnover, you know, these things that are incredibly costly to an organization. Um, I don't think there's anything more costly to an organization than, than turnover. No, I agree. I agree. I'm going to let my 
um, colleague Courtney jump in here, but the one thing that I will just um, say before I pivot is, um, and this audience has heard me share this before, because I, I, this is this is a statement that I will die on the hill for. It is hard for any person to show up at their best in any environment if they are always questioning whether or not they belong. You know, do I belong here? Am I valued? Am I seen? Am I heard? Do I have full opportunity for success? And so your words really resonated with me and gave me a chance to bring that back to the conversation as a key reminder. Courtney. Does that quote belong to you? Because you're willing to die on the hill for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Ricardo, I kind of want to pivot just a little bit, still kind of on this topic, but um, what I always find very interesting, especially um, when talking with others, <clears throat> um, the role that allyship plays, you know, and typically you may think like, hey, you can, you belong here. Like, you know, I accept you. I see you. I, you know, um, want you to be your full self. But um, that may not be translated in a way that still creates a, an environment where someone feels like they can show up as themselves. So, so, you know, what is your take on allyship and its role in, in contributing to creating cultures of belonging? I think it doesn't go far enough. I think we should be talking more about mentorship. We, we should be talking more about sponsorship. I think allyship is an easy way to say I'm with you, but I don't really have to do a whole lot else other than say I'm with you. And that to me is a shortcoming. It's a start. I'll give you an example. In, in six stages of cultural mastery, we talk about stage six is endearment. And the whole premise of that book was written on the antithesis to cultural tolerance. Because every time I would hear cultural tolerance, I'm thinking, my God, what are we going to do? We're going to go through the rest of our lives just gritting our teeth at each other. We're just going to tolerate each other. And, and then, you know, I have a, I have a background uh, in theology. And I think that there's this verse in the book of Corinthians that says, love is the greatest. Well, it has to apply to all human relationships, right? So instead of saying love, because I knew it wouldn't be accepted in corporate America, I the book is alliterated with E, so the last stage is endearment. So this is similar to me, Courtney. Rather than cultural tolerance, the goal of our cultural relationships should be cultural endearment. How do we get to where we love each other naturally? Doesn't mean we always agree with each other. Love does not require agreement. You know, anyone who has a spouse or partner, we don't always agree, but we love each other enough to find the common good. The problems that we're having culturally is we don't love each other. I always tell people we're not divided because we disagree. We're divided because we're just so damn disagreeable. There's a spirit in us that is toxic in our culture. So in the same way that cultural tolerance really needs to be reframed to cultural endearment, I think allyship has to be reframed to sponsorship and mentorship. I think it doesn't go far enough. That's okay, I'm going to jump in. 
I love this. I, I'm loving this conversation. And again, one of the things we do here on the podcast is we like to interrogate what we're hearing. It's not enough just to come and have the knowledge and the insight transferred, but let's process what we're hearing, how we feel about what we're hearing, what we plan to do about it, how it can apply to our lives and the sphere of influence that we have. And so I'm sitting here with my learning hat on and, and, and I agree with you. I love the, the connotation of cultural endearment. And I have never actually heard it expressed that way. You know, I've heard language like cultural intelligence, cultural humility, uh, cultural tolerance, even what you brought to the conversation, even cultural competence. But when I think about each of those, um, many of them have other challenges as well, like cultural tolerance. For example, cultural competence. Are we really ever able going to be to a point where we're fully competent? We've mastered everything that we ever need to know about every culture? No, that's not possible. And so, but I do love the cultural endearment. The one thing that was coming up for me though, Ricardo, is when you answer the question about ally, I, I totally understood where you were coming from because there are a number of people that have not fully subscribed to the fact that allyship at bare minimum is about action. So it's not just about the sentiments of saying, you know, oh, I stand with you. And so for me, I believe that if we can help people to really understand the, the outcome of what effective allyship is going to, to do for others, particularly and specifically rather those who are part of those marginalized, underrepresented, underestimated communities, then I think that ideas such as mentoring someone, sponsoring someone should come into the conversation, right? And so maybe it is about, let's help people to really truly understand what is effective allyship. I just wanna give you a chance to kind of respond to that, but I love what you shared. Well, I, I mean, if, if you can reframe the definition for people, because most people what I speak with, corporate leaders, when you talk about that with them, allyship, that's their perception, right? Yeah. So I, you have a background in PR and marketing, so you know full well that to bring a new product or service into the marketplace that needs to educate people as to what that product or service is, is harder to sell, right? So I think that that is an educational uh, goal if, if, in fact, the word needs to be reframed or repurposed for people to understand it better. So I'm not against the term. My, my, my thinking is, is that most people that I speak with, when they think of allyship, at least these are in my circles, right? Um, they're thinking, you know, I can just give a good word. I can encourage. Right. And, and they, that's and not they it. think that, you know, and, but that's enough. Yeah. That's enough. You know, I, I'm the CEO. And so as long as I put out a memo and I say, Hey, let's support these people. That's all I got to do. Right. And, and so I think, you know, some words matter. Right. And, and semantics are important. Etymology is important. And I, I love etymology. I, I, I work very hard to, to understand the root meaning of words. Um, so I look, I'm with you. I just don't think most yeah. people understand it in the terms that you and I may understand it. You're right. Yeah. Um, really quickly, and then I'll, I'll toss it back to my colleague, Courtney. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask people and to encourage people to ask others that they're looking to ally advocate for is what does support look like for you? We can't assume that we know what that support looks like and what is some type of useful action. Sometimes we will draw our own conclusions and we will feel like we're making great strides 
And it's sometimes it's harmful, right? Because we just, we don't know what we don't know. So we have to really get proximate to the problem and the issues. And I love what um, Vicki has shared into the chat. She said that people can't label themselves an ally. It is a continual education process and you have to earn that title and you earn it by those in which you are allying and advocating for. Last thing, I remember seeing a meme and it stuck with me, but it was along the lines of, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but and this goes back to my favorite question of what does support look like for you? But it was something along the lines of, don't tell me you support me and then pass up every opportunity to support me. And to me, the reason that that resonated is because it brings us back full circle to this conversation. It is not just about your words. That is that is rhetorical reassurance, right? Telling people, I support you, I support you. But if you aren't doing something to allow that to actualize into real support, it is not support. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so true. anyway. There's a, there's a proverb that says, even a child is known by his deeds. You know, even children are, are, are judged on what they do. Um, so here's a quote of mine that I'm gonna die on the hill for. Okay. <laughs> we can't lead people to the highest levels until we know them at the deepest levels. Okay. We can't lead that. people to the highest levels until we know them at the deepest levels. Here's the reality. And I've done these exercises with people. They don't know their people. They know what their people can do but they don't know their people. And there is a huge gap in our leadership models because it's been created so hierarchically rather than spherically. So one of the things that we advocate for is a, a refocusing of the leadership model itself. So rather than the leader seeing herself or himself above people, the leader seeing him or herself as the central hub, the central influencer of the people, but the leader is actually within the people. Just that basic shift in leadership and the leadership model itself creates a whole different dynamic. Okay. So if we don't know people at the deepest levels, we can't lead them to the highest levels. And so thus we have stage one in cultural mastery, which is education. Look, I, I did this with a group of leaders in the construction industry in the South, in Texas, where the labor force is 90% Mexican. Okay. And they've had these people in their employ for 10, 15, 20 years. And I asked them the most simple, basic questions about Mexico and Mexicans. They have no idea. So how can we lead people we don't know? We don't deeply understand. It's impossible. So I think the very beginning of allyship is education. And then I would advocate to go to engagement, and then empathy and all of those wonderful things. I just, I think it's a process. And one of the things about leaders is they love process. They have a very difficult time getting their heads around ideas, even though they say they're idea people. They love process. 
because process produce, produces specific results, right? And so I tend to be quite process in my approach to this, and, and that may not be the approach of other people in this field, um, but I, I th it works, right? And, and so I, I'm not pushing back on the concept of allyship. I just think because of the perspective of a lot of leaders, it isn't really getting us where we need to get it. Of course. Yeah, well no. stated. So I'm going to listen in for another yeah. one or two minutes and then I'm going to jump off. But you're in good hands, uh, Ricardo. I did want to say thank you so much before I have to step away. I look forward to Oh, my to pleasure. And again, thank you for endorsing the, the book. It's very valuable to me. So and a free one is coming your way. So <laughs> thank you kindly. Thank you. Well, perfect. I love the conversation that um, took place around allyship. And one of the things I love about the IC podcast community is just the engagement and how, you know, concepts can just kind of, or conversations can just take and, and go. So I appreciate all the activity in the chat. Um, I have one question and then we're going to turn it over to the audience for questions. But um, we've been talking about like cultural endearment and cultural tolerance, all these different, you know, cultural types. And one thing that we talked about in the prep call that you and I had um, was this idea of moving from organizations, moving from cultural sensitivity to like being culturally skilled. Can you talk about that? And I mean, I just thought that was so awesome. And um, I would love to kind of have you um, expand on that for our community. I think sensitivity leads us to pain. The more sensitive I am, the more pain I feel. And we have enough pain already in our cultural relationships. I, I like to think in terms of rather than becoming more culturally sensitive, how do I become more culturally skilled? Is there a specific skill set that I can apply to my leadership, to my life that allows me to more effectively work with people who are very different from myself? Which, by the way, for everyone, diversity simply means different. So we're simply talking about how do we most effectively work with people who are different from ourselves, not just look different, but think different. You know, we're, we're wonderful right now in the U.S., especially in corporations, embracing the idea of, um, you know, um, diversity of ethnicity or racial diversity or orientation, sexual orientation diversity. But we're not very good at embracing cognitive diversity. And the reason for that is, is because our beliefs and our values and our norms create our deepest cultural conflicts, right? And so we have to learn to navigate that. So I think there's a definite skill set that allows us to properly navigate those things. So I just encourage people to let's not be so culturally sensitive. Let's let's really up our skill set. Let's become much more culturally skilled. Perfect. Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> I actually like, wrote that down. And so I'm going to, that's going to be something that I'm pushing for and striving for is to be more culturally yeah, skilled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a better goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I do have one question in the chat. And then of course, as you all know, please raise your hand. I use the reaction, you know, um, to raise your hand or um, drop your uh, questions in the chat. I'm happy to read them aloud. Um, Nicole, I did see your question. Um, would you like to unmute and ask, or would you like for me to read it aloud? Courtney, can I ask you for permission for someone? Oh, yes. Or from yes. you. Uh, is it okay if I put the, a link to where my books are on the line online if somebody wants to just see the different? Of course. Books? Yeah, I did put the one for to belong or not to yeah, belong. Yeah, for the, to belong, all if you want to pre-order the yeah. to belong book, then do it at that link. This is just my other books and stuff. So if somebody <laughs> wants to check that out, they're, they're welcome. To yes. Just... 
Because I've be mentioned amazing. the six stages of cultural mastery now on different occasions. And so I want to make sure people have that. Okay. Yes, of Thank course. You, <laughs> <laughs> oh, check it out. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So, Nicole, would you like to unmute and ask, or I'm happy to ask on your behalf? Just let me know what works best, maybe in the chat. Okay. Well, I will go ahead and ask this question. Um, and so, uh, Nicole's question is, who do I continue to encourage, or I'm sorry, let me read through this really quickly. Nicole, you're welcome to come on here. Um, okay, so she did express that she has, she's the mother of a teen child who feels that they don't belong. Um, and she's been trying to encourage them to be true to themselves. And so her question is around like, how would she encourage them to come to the table authentically as themselves, uh, which would mean not conforming to their peer norms um, and still feel like they belong or related to, you know, their temptation is um, rather to leave the table and isolate rather than to lean in. So she's wanting kind of some, some guidance or some, you know, thoughts that can help her encourage her teen, her teen son who's struggling with belonging or teen child, I'm sorry. Okay, so there are multiple levels to that question. And first of all, I, I want you to know that um, I, I feel for your son. Um, I felt that way my whole life. And I still feel that way to some degree. Um, and if you, if you read my book, you'll know why. But at the depth of every human experience is the desire to feel like we belong. So I think to help him uncover that to which he wants to belong and then find that space or those spaces we we can't belong to every entity it's not even healthy to think in those terms so some it's okay to not want to belong to certain places or groups it's okay right but we have to find out and this goes back to identity right who who do i believe i am Okay. And then who do others believe I am? And so if others believe I'm something that I'm not, that's okay, as long as I can connect to a group or a group of people that will give me that sense of identity and identification. I think you have to help your son discover that, whatever that might be, and also assure him that it's okay to not want to be part of certain places. It's okay. There are certain places I don't want to be. And I'm okay with that. Okay. There are certain people that I don't want to be with. And that's okay. Okay. But that is a deep struggle for identity. And it's a deep struggle for identification. And you kind of have to help your son to work through that. Um, I don't know how that is impacting if it is impacting your son from a mental health standpoint but because we are in mental health awareness month i do want to if, if with your permission Courtney, i want to talk about this um i was nine years old and walked in on my mother committing suicide and she she had intentionally taken an overdose of pills and when i walked in the room her eyes were rolled up into the back of her head. And I don't know how, but at nine, I had the wherewithal to call 911. And my mother lived. 
but my mother never wanted to belong on earth. She was an orphan. She had been rejected. My father, by all accounts, was not nice to her a lot. You know, she just had a rough life. The ultimate statement on belonging is suicide. Over 3,000 people a day attempt suicide. Only one in 25 actually go through with it or complete it. We have to be very, very conscious of the mental health of the people around us. People are in pain. And even more so today, and I talk about this in the book, the virtuality of the world we're living in is creating a deep, deep level of loneliness for people. You ever go to a restaurant and you see a family of four and every one of them is on their phones and no one's actually together? I want to share with you something that changed my life. I have a 15-year-old daughter now, but when she was nine or 10, we were out to dinner and I was on my phone, you know, I was, I was doing this, you know. And I always justified it. You know, it's business. I'm helping people. And my daughter changed my life with one statement. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, you're not here and you're not there. Where do you really want to be? And I started turning my phone off. <laughs> And I started experiencing my daughter and the loneliness that she was feeling started to subside. I think sometimes we think we're together and we're not. When Steve Jobs created the iPhone and the touchscreen, he had two teenage children and he would not allow either one of them to have a phone because he said, this will destroy society. We are living in very lonely, detached days. COVID only exasperated that. I would find, I'm very, very, you know, uh, Nicole, first of all, be there, be there. You know, to be or not to be, to belong or not to be, to belong, they're, they're kind of the same thing. We have to be there. And I would try to help my son discover where he wants to be. And then I would just move heaven and earth to help him get there. Yeah. Now to do that, you've got to uncover who he is. Yeah. That's amazing, Ricardo. And thank you for your transparency. And that, I mean, there's so much transparency in your book. Um, it's just very, very open. And um, so appreciate that. And Nicole, I, I hope that I, one, did your question justice and that um, that is providing some really good um, assistance with how you, with having you navigate this um, with, with, your, with your child. Um, Robin, I see your hand. If you would like to unmute and join the conversation. Uh, right, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, hola, como esta? 
Estamos bien, muy bien, gracias. Um, that's all I know, but I like to shit, uh, use it when I have it. Uh, I actually, I used to know a little bit more back in the day. Um, uh, I can still say this one phrase. Uh, mi amigo mejor es medio mexicano y la mamá de su hija es de Puerto Rico y ella no habla inglés, entonces uh, aprendí cómo habla español, pero ahora no practico. So, can I give you a link to a free book? Sure. All right. Like I, uh, no, I want I, I want to give you a link to my book, The Twelve Hidden Truths to Learning Spanish. You have Latino ancestry, and I want to tell you something. There are five elements of culture. One is language. There are a lot of sec there are a lot of um, second generation Hispanics in the United States who so deeply want to reconnect with their roots but you have to learn the language to be able to do so. Mm -hmm. So I would like to provide for you um, that book and also the first level of our Spanish power course. I'm happy to give it to you. Oh, I love that. I've been trying to, so I'm not Latino, but uh, you know, again, I-, I uh, But you're, you're a Latino wannabe and you're, you're talking about Puerto Ricans. So that's, and I'm Puerto Rican, so see there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, uh, I said this, I shared this last week. You know, my mother's white, my dad is black, and somehow they came out with a Puerto Rican. And so when I grew up, I would say, you know, my name was Marco. You know, I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood. So, um, but my question is one, thank you for everything that you're sharing today. Some really interesting and engaging content. I'm really excited to jump into some of your books. Uh, and then my question is around allyship. You talked about allyship. I, I'm a big proponent of allyship, but to your point, not in that uh, only from the, the service level vocal vocalization of, hey, I support you, go get them tiger type of a thing, but more of a you know, very tactical and practical ways of being an ally. And there's multiple different things. And I shared a, a link to an article that I use very, very frequently. Wow. Um, talks about you know seven ways to be an ally in the workplace. But there's also the concept that allies don't lead from the front and that allyship is really a, a background position. Uh, there was one video that I saw and she talked about, you know, when you think about Destiny's Child, you know, allyship is not Beyonce, it's not Michelle, it's not even Kelly Rowland. It's like somebody that the, the girl that nobody even knew their name. Um, so what's your take on like, thinking about the physical representation of where allyship should be taking place in the conversations. Uh, I would love to hear your take on that. So may I ask a follow-up question to that? In the conversations with whom? I mean, it's, it's always situational, right? You know, so it could be- um, The answer will depend on that. Right. Because the way I might speak with someone in the C-suite about allyship is totally different than I may speak with someone who's leading an ERG or BRG within your organization. They're different frames of reference and different points of perspective. So follow up back for you. Sorry, Courtney. Um, <laughs> uh, so when you think about like corporations and working uh, in the BNI space um, yeah. and having those conversations at multiple levels, but just as a, as a global concept within an organization, how do we message the, the process of being an ally in this organization that 
to your point, has multiple different levels, multiple different, you know, spaces within the organization and then, you know, in people's lives. You know, there's there's more than just the work person because allyship is can't just be, well, while I'm at work, I'm an ally. When I'm at home, I'm whatever else you want to want to think. They're you, right? Uh, look, the very fact that we have to talk about allyship or we have to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion tells us something at a much deeper level. It tells us that we're culturally dysfunctional. Think about it like this. If our cultures were healthy, truly healthy, if in the DNA of every leader in our organizations, we had cultural skill and intelligence and cultural endearment, would we even need these conversations? The answer is no. That sounds a little bit radical and crazy right now, but the whole movement is predicated and based on the fact that we have cultural dysfunction. If we eliminated the cultural dysfunction, we would, in essence, eliminate the movement. There would be no need for it. Okay. So here's where I'm at on this. I've done a lot of thought on this. I mean, a lot. And obviously, I write on it. I think we have the cart before the horse. I think we should be focusing a whole lot more on developing the cultural DNA of our leadership rather than trying to get our leadership to do the right things. If these foundational things were done, we'd see a huge shift very quickly because we see it. We see it when we do this type of thing. You, you start seeing that, oh, if we can embed in the DNA, right? And we can get leaders culturally healthy and skilled, which by the way, and this is, this is actually in the book, this is interesting. So we have a cultural assessment that we do and we measure cultural background, cultural biases. You know, we, we, we statistically measure these things. Scale of one to 10. 10 is like, I don't know, maybe it's Gandhi Jesus. You know, it's the perfect cultural leader, right? And we have over 2,000 of these in from C-suite, even DEI leaders, um, university presidents, right? High-level leaders. These, these assessments are only with high-level leaders. We have over 2,000. What do you think the average score is on a 10-point scale? You ask me specifically? Yeah, I mean, you and I are the ones who are in this conversation. Uh... I mean, it depends on what what the what the what you're assessing. What are, cultural, what we're assessing cultural skill and intelligence. That's what we're assessing overall. Three. The average score is five point one one, which is at the very lowest of the novice area culturally. These are the people leading our companies, and this is why we need to have all of these conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, and allyship, and mentorship, and all this stuff, because we have people leading our organizations who are not culturally healthy and skilled. And until we start getting the horse before the cart, we're just going to keep doing this. And I know that's tough truth, but it's truth.
Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Pabana, for your question and Ricardo for, for engaging with that. Um, I can't believe that we've already like sped through one hour and we're coming at the top of the hour. And I know that we've covered a lot and that, um, you know, we've talked about your book. I, Ricardo, I'd love to just give you the last couple of minutes to give any final thoughts. Um, if you were wanting to drop additional resources in the chat, um, please feel free to do so um, and just kind of open it up for you to close us out. Yeah, so first of all, I want to come back to Nicole because I'm very, very um, compassionate towards these types of things. Um, I have a son who's a musician who, you know, we, we've had to work like crazy to, to connect, right? And, and um, I, I get that I, and I understand that. And, and I was younger and I, I didn't, when he was young, I, I, didn't, I didn't connect in the way I needed to. And I'm just being honest. And, and so, you know, life is a journey. We're all on this journey. We're all learning. We're all evolving, uh, hopefully better, right? So Nicole, if, if you would like to reach out to me personally, feel free to do so. Um, I'm happy to, to speak with you, um, just to have that conversation with you, if you'd like to do that. And you can get my, you can get my contact information from Courtney. Okay. Um, so that would, that'd be the first thing. The second thing is I think that all of us um, should strive for cultural endearment rather than cultural tolerance. And then, you know, however I can, you know, if I can serve you, feel free to, I put early on, I put my LinkedIn address there. So it's, it's in the chat at the very top of the chat. So feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, but it's just Ricardo Gonzalez, number one. Um, you know, I think that Courtney, belonging is a very intensely personal subject. And there are so many different lessons to learn through that. But at, at its core, it's a struggle for identity and identification. And it's a question of who are you? And where are you? And the beauty of it is every one of us gets to define that, <laughs> right? So, you know, I, I'd invite you to continue on that journey. And if I can be part of that, then I'd love to, you know, so. Beautiful. Well, thank you so, so much. Everyone, don't forget that we have a special link um, for you to pre-order Ricardo's um, newest book, To Belong or Not To Belong. For all of you out there who are helping to support um, individuals and, and, you know, be a village to those um, and are celebrating um, Mother's Day, we wish you a happy, happy Mother's Day for all our caregivers out there. We'll all see you all next week.